0: You yeah, have your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther. I knew Cheryl can be, I figured she'd stand and do a handstand or something. i have never forget, forget that I, at one time I taught Cheryl's daughter in one of my sonical classes. And she told me that anytime they read the book of Esther, her mother did a visual aid for her. Hanging menus and everything was included in that visual aid. And I got to tell you, a tremendous book, tremendous story in the book of Esther. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 16.
1: the next is a return more or less. For yeah, example,
0: If I perish, I perish. After all these years, this book still amazes me. It is by far the most amazing book I have ever read. I never tire of reading it. It never grows old. And every time I read God's Word, I gain something fresh and new. I see myself in a different light, a different perspective. And the Bible is the only book that I know of that tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But I have to confess, a lot of what the Bible says is rather shocking. It's rather eye-opening. Paul was writing to a young preacher named Timothy. And in his second letter to this young preacher, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, Know, I mean, this, know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. In the last days, Perilous times shall come. Perilous times. The thought there are times that are hard to bear. Dangerous times. Troublesome times. And yet the Bible says, count on it. And folks, let me remind you, things are going to get worse before they get better. Perilous, troublesome times are here. The last days began after the resurrection of Christ, when the Spirit of God came upon the believers at Pentecost. And the last days will continue until the second coming of Christ. I find it kind of interesting, early on in his ministry, Paul the Apostle believed that Christ would return in Paul's day. This morning we were in the book of Colossians as Paul wrote that letter to that church. By the time he wrote that letter, he realized Christ would probably not come in his lifetime. So the warning was clear. So every generation since the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been living in perilous times. And you can mark it down. The closer we come to the return of Christ, the more perilous the days will become. Perilous times are here. And I'm convinced that you and I, as children of God, somehow we are well aware of that. We know what the Bible says. We know what Jesus said in the Gospels when he spoke of the last days. But in spite of the fact that we are well aware of it, life goes on. Albeit with some uncertainty, life goes on. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your background, your ethnic background, your social status. Every one of us have uncertainty in our lives. Every one of us have fears, we have worries, concerns. It might be financial security or health, for loneliness, job loss, and this goes on and on and on. We live in a time, at least for me it's tough to watch the evening news. Our world is in turmoil. And so we're not unaware what's happening around our world but our deepest concern our deepest worries are close to home where we live there's a a rather common expression in Australia you've heard it no worries mate I went to a local tire shop a couple of years ago, and and I can't remember a conversation, but he said to me, "No worries, really, no worries." Now I know he was mimicking a little bit of what they say in Australia. <coughs> How about a show of hands? How many here can say, truthfully, say, "No worries." If you're living and breathing, you cannot say, no worries. We all have things that are legitimate worries. And we certainly have some that are not reasonable, and we need to get rid of those. But everyone has some legitimate worries. Someone said, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it takes you nowhere. Amen. Oswald Chambers wrote Worry is an indication that we think God cannot look after us. Amen. So here we are at the threshold of a brand new year. So how can we come and face our fears and overcome them of what might happen this year? It's been a few minutes after church. speaking with Marvin, and as he left, he said, well, I'm not sure about tomorrow, but I'm sure about the one who holds tomorrow, and we can't be sure of that. So, how can we move from fear to faith? That's one of the reasons I want to look tonight and finish up next week, Lord willing, at the story of a young woman named Esther. And I realize that these events took place over 2,500 years ago. But it's an amazing story. An amazing story of amazing courage that points to a life free from consuming fear over what might happen tomorrow. In our story of Esther, boy, what a, what a tremendous book this is. Jeremy, I think several years ago, you preached through the entire book, did you not? And what's the one thing we know about the book of Esther? Who's never mentioned God, not directly. I mentioned this morning we're in the book of, I'm in the book of Job, my daily reading, and to get to the book of Job, you you go to the book of Esther first. And all the while I'm reading to the book of Esther, and I know the facts, I know that God is not mentioned by name, but He's on every page. You cannot read the book of Esther and not see God at work. An amazing Amazing book. Our story takes place, or Esther's story, (coughs) takes place in 465 B.C. A man named Ahasuerus, that's his Persian name, the Greek name is Xerxes. He was king of Persia. (coughs) At that time, Ahasuerus was the most powerful man in the world. In fact, the empire he ruled extended farther than the empire of Nebuchadnezzar extended. The greatest man at that time in the world. Ahasuerus ruled over 127 provinces from India all the way to Cush. And our story takes place in one of four capital cities, Shushan. And in that capital city, Shushan, that's where the story of Esther begins to unfold. In 465 B.C., Shushan was the one of the world's greatest cities. Darius the Mede, father of King Ahasuerus, he built this winter palace. And by the way, archaeologists have discovered a tablet there in the ruins. And that tablet gives details on how King Darius built that palace. I'm not going to take time to... to Go through that tonight. You can look it up yourself. Now, the real capital of the Persian Empire was Babylon. Shushan served as a winter palace, it was a place to get away from the pressures of Babylon. And the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, he kept his harem in Shushan. The harem was simply a large group of beautiful women who were there to serve the king any way he wished. And these women were gathered from among the most beautiful women in the empire. It included Persian women as well as women from other countries. These women were given a special diet. They were taught a special way of life. And their only duty, their only obligation, you have to please the king. One after another, the king would call the women, call the men. They would serve him and do his bidding. we have a man named Ahasuerus. Also in the book of Esther, there's a man named Mordecai. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now in Shushan, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, by the way, I would challenge you to go home when you get a chance and read the book of Esther through in one sitting. Not hard to do. Not an extremely difficult book. Not an extremely long book. You can do it in one sitting. And I couldn't help but think, in the middle of all what's going on, we'll share something in a moment. Why in the world do we need to know about a man named Mordecai? I mean... In the vast scope of things going on at that point in chapter 2, he's a nobody. But not in God's eyes. He's a somebody. And so without explanation, we come across a man named Mordecai. And we're told that he's raising his niece. So what? Hang on to your seat, all right? But another thing about the book of Esther, we're going to find that a Jewish princess is going to become a queen. In the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, this has been four hundred eighty three BC, he gave a banquet. And my friend, it was a blowout. It was a massive banquet which he invited his nobles, his officials, and his military leaders. The princes, the nobles of all the provinces, and this celebration, this banquet lasted 130 days. Wow. At the end of the 180 days, Ahasuerus gave another banquet. And this one lasted seven more days for the people in Shushan. And the Bible says everybody was invited. The great and the small. And everybody in between. And this feast that was given (coughs) was livened by the fact that any guest could drink in his own way whatever he wanted how much they wanted in as little or as much time as they desired the king was extremely liberal with the wine now if this was a comic book it was a meanwhile while the king is giving a banquet the queen Vashti was giving a separate banquet for the women. And so in the midst of this drunken party, Ahasuerus told his seven eunuchs, I want you to go, and I want you to bring Vastai to this banquet hall. I want everybody, all the nobles, all the princes, of all the provinces, all the people, I want them to see What a knockout my queen is. I want them to see her beauty. You know the story. Bastai said, not coming. Uh Uh-oh. She refused to come. How many know the king wasn't happy about that? He wasn't happy about it. He's embarrassed. So he calls together a cabinet meeting. What should I do? I've asked her to come. She refused to come. What should I do? So one of his wise men on the council, one of them suggested, get rid of the the queen. He pulls her. Simply get rid of her so that no other noble women of the empire, in fact, that no other woman of the empire would follow backside the example and despise their husbands. (coughs) According to the Bible, this idea pleased the king. It pleased the nobles. And an edict was sent throughout the empire in all the different languages. So everybody understood it. Saying that every man. Amen. Should be ruled over his household. Come on. Yes. <laughs> you men her chicken. That's what went out. Every man. To be in charge. Months passed. Days had gone by. The anger of the king began to subside. And he realized, and I made a mistake. How foolish could I have been. So the cabinet members got together again and they suggested to the king, gather some beautiful unmarried women. Bring them to Shushan. Enlarge your harem. And they did that. And they placed them under the eunuch who's in charge. I'll not give his name. You can read it yourself. And they were all given beauty treatments. At the end of the designated period, the king would be allowed to choose from those unmarried women We've been groomed for that purpose, a woman to replace Bachelorette. Bear with me for a moment. As luck would have it.
1: Huh? No way! As luck would have
0: it, there was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. As luck would have it, he had some kind of position in the palace. Now, I hope you know I'm being facetious when I say luck, okay? I see the hand of God, don't you? And Mordecai had a cousin who was female. Her name was Hadassah. We know her better as Esther, her Persian name. Evidently, her parents had died. And Mordecai was raising her as his own child. Esther was beautiful. She was lovely in form and in features. And so she was one of the unmarried women taken into Ahasuerus' harem to await the king's choice. Now remember, she wasn't the only one. There were a lot of beautiful unmarried women who were called to Shushan to be a part of this harem. And the Bible says, immediately, Esther pleased the eunuch in charge of the harem. What luck? Not on your life. And because she pleased him well, the Bible says she was given a favorable position in the harem. Now, I've got to confess, as I read that, even this week, I had to think. I couldn't help but think of Joseph. All the times he's been in Egypt, he went to Pharaoh's house, and guess what happened? Because he won their favor. He was treated well. He went to prison. What happened? Same thing. Was it luck? It was the hand of God at work. The same is true here. But this eunuch in charge of the harem, he saw something there in Esther. Something a little different. How believe that God caused him to see that? He saw that she had she he made sure because of who she was, or who he thought about her, he made sure that That she had special beauty treatments, and that she had special food. He even he even gave her seven maids to wait on her, to help her in this twelve month process. Twelve months come and go. Twelve months of preparation. One by one, they come before the king. And finally, Esther was taken to the king. And the king made Esther queen. What luck. How many know that God knows the future? Amen. How many know that God knows the end from the beginning? He absolutely does. In your wildest imagination... Especially there in the Persian Empire. The empire in which the Jews were slaves. They were in bondage. Who would have thought that a Jewish woman. One of God's chosen people. Would ever become queen of Persia. And now all of a sudden. This. This. Jewish woman was now the most important woman in the entire kingdom. A Jewish woman, queen to a Persian king. What luck! Not on your life. Not on your life. Enter a man named Haman. Cheryl loves Haman. She hangs him every time she tells a story. <laughs> the Bible says, tells us that Haman was promoted to the highest position by the king. He was second in all the land. And because of his elevated status, everyone, every other noble, And that great empire had to bow the knee to him. But Mordecai, Esther's uncle, said, no way. I'm a Jew, and I don't bow my knee to anyone. And Mordecai refused to bow the knee. How many know it didn't sit well with him? He couldn't stand it. It ate him alive. Now, by the way, something I forgot to add early on. When Mordecai is introduced in chapter 2, we read later on, and again, we're not sure exactly what position he had in the palace, but he had some position there. But word got to Mordecai that there were a couple of uh, Ahasuerus' eunuchs or somebody was plotting it, assassinating. And Mordecai goes and tells the king, Hey, watch out, they're out to get you. So what? How many know God has a plan? God has. Haman says, bow, Mordecai says, no, I'm a Jew, I'm not going to do it. Haman was so enraged because Mordecai refused to bow down. The Bible says he was determined to find a way to kill every Jew in the provinces. Now, by the way, I would challenge you to go home and read that. I mean, the words. Annihilate, kill, murder, destroy, whatever. He was out to get all the Jews. Not just Mordecai. So Haman goes to the king. Says, king, there's a certain race of people. They live throughout the empire. And king... You need to know something about those people. They kind of keep to themselves. Their laws are different from those of any other people. And king, they refuse to obey your laws. So king, a word to the wise. It's not in your best interest to let them live. So king, what you need to do. Here's my idea. Put out a decree that they be destroyed. Every one of them. And you know the story. Haman says, if you do, I'll deposit a large amount of money in the royal treasury. I find it kind of interesting. Haman never told the king He was referring to the Jews. He just said a certain race of people. And by the way, the truth of the matter is, nothing of what Haman said about the Jews was true. They were not trying to rebel. They were not being obstinate. Nothing of what he said was true. Now think about this. Haman said, a certain race of people. Back in chapter 2, when Mordecai was introduced, it says a certain Jew named Mordecai. How many know God knows your name? How many know God has a plan for your life? Well, got back to Mordecai, and he begins to mourn. So whatever the reason Mordecai may have had for not bowing down to Haman, now he's in sackcloth and ashes. We don't know for sure whether his feud with Haman was legitimate or not. But the bottom line is that feud between Haman and Mordecai caused a tremendous crisis for the entire nation. He realized that now God's chosen people were in danger of being destroyed, and God's program being thwarted. But how many know that cannot happen? But it looked like it's going to. So he puts on his sackcloth and his ashes. Crying and weeping publicly, without a doubt, showing his brokenness. And people walked by, and they would realize that Mordecai, even they didn't know who he was, was someone in great distress. Now you know the story. He had asked Esther not to reveal his or her ethnicity. Don't tell him you're a Jew. Maybe he regretted telling Haman he was a Jew. I don't know. But what he did endangered the lives of his people. The edict goes out. The confusion, not only in Shushan, but across the province, all the same response. Now, I don't know for sure, the Bible doesn't say, but I have to believe there's some praying went on. These were God's people. These were God's people. And as I said earlier, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. But you cannot miss the fact he's working behind the scenes. To deliver his people. Well finally word comes to Esther. Hey your uncle he's out there. He's out there and he's in mourning. Something is wrong. And so she sends a messenger to Mordecai. To find out why in the world are you doing what you're doing. Why are you doing this in a public place? Now we're not told, but to me the implication is she didn't know about the edict for what it, read, it hadn't got back to her about the law allowing the execution of the Jews. So the Bible says that Mordecai gives a messenger a copy of the edict to take back to Esther, and he says tell Esther all the details give her the fine print of how this came about and I want you to encourage her with all you can to go to the king on behalf of the Jews and beg for their lives how many know without some kind of reprieve from the king, Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews were going to die. Esther's response. It wasn't encouraging. It was not encouraging at all. Now, Persian monarchs, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, were protected against unwanted wanted visitors. They probably had a sign no solicitors. And guess what you didn't do, you didn't come in unless you were invited. So Esther reminds Mordecai, you know the rules. You know the law. And yes, I am the queen. But even I, I can't simply walk into the king's inner chambers unannounced. Because I could, even though I'm a queen, the queen, I could be put to death. The Bible says if the king extended his golden scepter, that she was displaying the fact that he approved of the visit. Come on in. And Esther said to Mordecai, I haven't been with the king for a month. I don't know what kind of mood he's in. I don't know what's going on. I have no idea of how he might receive me. He hasn't asked me for for the past month. How many know if we're going to serve God, we've got to count the cost? we got to count the cost. I know we're living in an age of easy believism, But my friend, salvation is free, but the Christian life is not easy. It's anything but. Now, if you want to go with the flow, with the ebb that's easy. But to commit yourself to service, you've got to count the cost. Mordecai says, you know what, Esther? You have to save us. You are our only hope. And Esther said, Mordecai, you simply don't understand what you're asking me to do. You don't understand the serious ramifications of what you're asking me to do. Now, she doesn't come out and say, no, I'm not going to do it. That's not what she's saying. She says, Mordecai, before you ask me to do it, you have to understand what the risk is. You you need to know what I'm risking. If I go in to see the king, and the king doesn't want to see me, he will put me to death. He will take my life even though I am the queen. So Mordecai, I want you to think hard about what you are asking me to do. So she wasn't saying no. She was doing what I think any reasonable person would do. She was counting The personal cost. By the way. How many know that's biblical? Luke 14.28 Jesus asked a question. For which of you. Intending to build a tower. Siteth not down first. And count the cost. Whether. He have sufficient to finish it. Verse 31, of the same chapter, Luke 14. Or oh, what king, going to make war against another king, sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? You count the cost. Matthew 16, 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Easy? Not on your life. But with God, all things are possible. I sent Jason my notes, and we're not going to get that far tonight. The last part of my notes I sent him, the heading said, The three challenges Mordecai made to Esther. Jason texted me last night. He said, Dad, I got your notes, but I only see two. I said, We're not going to get that far. We're not going to get to number one. Let me close with this. Anytime we choose to get involved, there will always be personal cost. Did you hear me? It's been a while since I've looked at the statistics on this. You had enough of those this morning. I know that. But the last I read some years ago, in any given church, only about 10% of the people are actively involved. You know why? Getting involved costs something. And I don't think I'm wrong about my next statement. That's why a lot of people like mega churches. They can come in, hear a message, satisfy their guilt. Nobody knows they're there. Nobody knows where they are, where they come from. They go home. It doesn't cost them anything. Esther said, Mordecai, you need to understand. If I go see the king, I'm taking my life in my own hands. Counting the cost. We'll finish this, or at least try to, next week. But I want to tell you something, folks. Whatever the cost is, it's worth it. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for your words tonight. What a story. What a God. And Father, I pray that it would allow you to speak to our hearts and, Lord, remind ourselves, no matter what you call us to do, no matter what you ask us to do, getting involved involves personal cost. Remind us, Lord, that it is worth it, whatever it is, because we want our lives to be pleasing to you. In the precious name of Christ, I pray, and all
1: God's people said, Amen.